Good morning. <laughs> it's uh, good to be back with you. Well, we uh, graciously were provided a, a vacation this last week, um, not just the time off, but actually uh, it was a gift that we were able to go to Mexico uh, for a week. Just my wife and I, it was wonderful. Um, one of the most interesting things happened, though, at the very beginning of the trip, as we sat down on the plane at Philadelphia International Airport to head out, uh, I asked her if uh, they had ever checked our boarding passes. It was very strange. Um, and, and she said, no, I don't, they didn't check mine, they checked yours, no. And we realized what must have happened is they now have this thing that they said, we're going to do a biometric verification of your identity. And, and I thought it was just so immigration and stuff when we came back or whatever, but apparently, you know, they just took a camera before we got on the plane. They had a camera set up. You just stand there in the little, you know, like you do at security with the little footprints and you just stand there and they knew who we were. They knew our identity. Never checked our boarding pass. Didn't check our ID getting on the plane. That was it. That's a little creepy, uh, but it, it's, it shows just how kind of strange at times we live in that, that people know our identity. Uh, you could probably Google search now by image and find pictures of you you didn't know were out there. Um, if you had to prove your identity, it would probably be kind of easy, even though people still uh, pose as others. You've, some of you had texts claiming to be from me and saying, oh, go get me a gift card. I'm about to visit someone in the hospital and I can't be disturbed. So please go, you know, get a hundred dollars with the gift cards and text it to me. I would never say that. That's not me. Identity theft is a real thing. And our identities are important. And as we turn to Mark chapter one, it's actually a passage. In fact, the gospels themselves are very much about identity about who Jesus is, about who you are as a follower of Jesus. And this passage in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34 is no different. And in fact, uh, it's, it's, a it's about the response to Jesus proving his identity. Uh, it doesn't go into a lot of details about how he proves his identity, but he does prove his identity. He heals people, as Pastor Dave mentioned, the kid's message. He does uh, authoritatively teach, and he shows who he is to be the good and powerful and loving king. Uh, and the, the passage before us wrestles not with who he is, but with who we are and how you respond to Jesus demonstrating who he is. And there's three different responses. And as we dig into the passage, I invite you to consider which one fits you and how you respond to Jesus, who is the king. Would you read with me here in God's word, Mark chapter one, verses 21 through 34. They, that is the disciples and Jesus, after he had called them, went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, 
What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. This is God's word. Father, would you meet us here today? Open our eyes, our ears, most of all, open our hearts to respond to who Jesus is. The good, powerful, and loving King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage emphasizes this this authoritative teaching of Jesus that the power he has when he speaks and when he acts, that his teaching just speaks into people's lives, that he has power over demons to cast them out. He's got power over disease to make it go away. He's just got power. Those last few verses emphasize even various diseases, demon-possessed folks. Jesus just exercises his authority over all of these things. And that word, in fact, authority that's used here is very similar to the word for power. It has to do with the ability to control or command. And there's often with it the idea of of a rightness to it, a, a permission to do those things. If you think about a, a driver's license, you know, that is a a a right, it gives you the authority to drive on the roads that you then have permission to operate and control a motor vehicle. Jesus' authority extends way beyond motor vehicles. (laughs) It extends to everything. That Jesus has that authority over all things. And He can command, and He can speak, and His words and deeds all prove who he is and that's what Jesus is doing he's not you know exercising his power to flex you know he's not exercising his power to show off he's not power tripping at all he's he's revealing who he is and he's doing these good things healing people you know casting out demons setting people free speaking the truth in love Jesus is doing all of these things for the good of others. In fact, Jesus proves He is a powerful, good, and loving King by what He says and what He does. 
And we're not going to deal with that aspect as much. We hit that a couple of weeks ago. The idea that he is a good, powerful, loving king. But the issue here is, well, how do you respond to that? As Jesus demonstrates and proves that he's a good and powerful and loving king, how do you respond? And, and the only right response, the, the, the only sufficient response, is to serve him from your heart. And it's an interesting thing that happens an interesting thing that happens as you understand seeing the authority of Jesus and recognizing He's good and powerful and loving King, as you respond to Him from your heart, you become gooder and lovinger and powerful. These are all bad English words. If you're learning English, I'm sorry. Uh, but that you become like Him. You become like Jesus. And, and, and that response happens in a relationship with him. And this passage deals with a good relationship, the right relationship with Jesus, but it also deals, first of all, with two forms of a wrong relationship. And so we're going to look at two bad relationship paradigms with Jesus and one good one. And we start with the first bad relationship that we see here, which is a relationship with Jesus that is based on fame or popularity, um, this curiosity that leads to crowds. Look at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and that is, uh, as we read later in the text, where James and John were from, Peter and Andrew. They're fishing business out on the lake on the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum. And they, they probably had a nice place. They were business owners and had some boats, which meant they had some good income. And so they live there in Capernaum. Jesus has come down from Nazareth, as the demon confesses, Jesus of Nazareth. And now he's kind of making Capernaum his home base. And in particular, it seems like spending time with James and John and Peter and Andrew's families. But here they come into Capernaum and, and they go into the, the, the synagogue on the Sabbath. It, we would think of it as a church service. Basically, God's people coming together to, to worship and to hear a message, and he began to teach. Verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching. He was teaching them as one having authority and, and not as the scribes. The, the implication is Jesus is explaining what the text meant without talking about tradition so much and, and this rabbi and, and that thing that was handed down, but saying this is what it means explaining the word with authority. And their response is, it says, amazement. And the word, <laughs> there is not a stretch to say, you know, they were blown away or, or they were out of their minds in response. It's, it's a compound of, of a preposition that means out and a word that means to, to strike or, or hit. You know, they were hit out of their minds. You know, they're, they're just blown away, driven out of their own senses. Sometimes the word is even used as, to express, you know, a panic where you're not thinking clearly. You're just in such a state. This is the response they have to Jesus' teaching, that they're just blown away. Wow! You know, they're, 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 they're kind of those, you know, those followers that just boom, wow, oh, that's, that's exciting. I want to click on that. I want to watch that. That's, that seems really exciting. I'm, I'm going I'm to follow along. 
Jesus is doing things that are just amazing. Wow, look, everybody, look. Wow, did you see Jesus? Did you see what he's doing? He's doing this, man, isn't that amazing? Yeah, wow, did you see that? Wow, yeah, and they're all following him in the same sense that we would follow someone on social media today, which is to say we kind of have a relationship with them, and really we don't. We know a lot of things about them, and we know what they're doing. But, you know, if you were to show up at their house, it'd be a little creepy, in fact, you'd probably have the police talking to you about stalking or something, right? We, we don't really know those people that do amazing things. We're at a distance. The curiosity leads to crowds when the relationship's based on fame. And that's what seems to be happening here in this first bad response. Uh, you know, people are, are, are winding up not as disciples, but as debaters. Look at verse 27. They were all amazed. It's a slightly different word. That means experiencing an unusual event, kind of awe or wonder. And they're all in wonder and awe. Verse 27. So that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What, what's, what is this? What's going on? And they ask among themselves. They're talking among the crowd and even as it says, debating, arguing. Well, I think it means this. Well, no, I think it means this. I think, I think he's the Messiah. No, I don't think he's the Messiah. I think he's maybe in league with the devil and that's how he can command them. Well, no, I don't think that's right. I think he's just crazy. Well, I don't know. All his... On, on the periphery, near Jesus, enough to see what he's doing and hear what he's teaching and all that, but not actually engaging with him. Arguing with one another, debating with one another what he meant when, it doesn't say he said it here, but the message he was declaring was revealed in, in verse 14. What does he say in verse 14 and 15 right before this? In Mark chapter 1. He shows up in Galilee, preaching the good news of God, the gospel, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the response that he repeatedly asked people to come to. Repent and believe. The kingdom is here. I am the king, Jesus is saying. And they're debating. Well, I don't know. Whether they're listening or not, right? They're in awe at what he's doing, but they're still at a distance for this relationship, they're following the fame and the wow. It's not experiencing him, but being somewhat near. You know, it's, one of the things to think about and, and recognize here is that even today, as we follow celebrities and, and even give them a platform when all they've ever done is acted really well, we're now willing to listen to them about whatever, climate change or, you know, saving whatever animals or trees or even, you know, whatever cause, right? We'll, we'll listen to them. We might even elect them to public office, right? If Oprah ran, I think she could win just about any office at some point or another, right? Because she's, you know, there every day in our homes or whatever, right? Like that... That platform, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure she has good qualities and everything else, and maybe she would be a good candidate, but we tend to just elevate people because of celebrity. They become famous and they become more famous. 
We give them a platform and we follow them and listen to them, but we don't really engage with them. We don't really have a relationship with them. We're at a distance. And what this in part says is, you know, we really were made for awe and wonder. We were made for someone to influence us. We were made to listen to people who were elevated. And we counterfeit the fact that that one person we're supposed to listen to above all else is God. And when Jesus comes in the flesh, we kind of maybe listen, but kind of really debate among ourselves because it gets uncomfortable. Because yet we were made to listen. We don't really like it. We'd like it at a distance and maybe even pick and choose which of, of the good things he says that we latch on to and most likely probably align with the things that we like anyway. And the things that challenge us are things we're more likely to dismiss. You know, that's the nature of a relationship with Jesus that's based on kind of fame, based on what he does, based on being a little apart from him and holding him at arm's length and not drawing near. And I'll tell you, if you are more interested in arguing and debating about doctrine and those kind of things, or what's right and what's wrong, I'm concerned about whether you're actually following Jesus. And I would say you're probably not. If you are more interested in debating than being a disciple... You're not a follower of Jesus and you're not going to be until you listen to Jesus. Above all else. Until you put Jesus first in what you tune into. Until you're spending more time imbibing the Word than the news. Imbibing the Word than what those bad people in theology say. Until you listen to Jesus. Because Jesus has proven He's a powerful, good, and loving King. And we respond by kind of just making Him famous. You know, this is, the, this is what happens in the religion departments of most universities, right? People study Jesus and they're impressed by His teaching, but nah, he's, he's not really who He says He is, which is totally irrational, by the way. Like, why would you think He's got anything good to say if He's also a liar or a lunatic? That doesn't make sense. But that's what we do. Because we, we're, we're made for it and we just deny at the same time. It's not until we actually will listen. Until we will hear what he says. But that's not even enough either. Because in fact, the, the next bad form of a relationship is, is not just a relationship based on fame. There's a relationship based on fear that leads to obedience. And it's still not sufficient. Because a relationship based on fear is going to feel threatened near Jesus. Look at verse 23. They go into the synagogue, right? Verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, a demon in him, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, Jesus gets really near, and, and this demon possessed man is there in the synagogue at the church service, so to speak, right? And he's really uncomfortable. 
because Jesus has come near. And he experiences fear. James says in chapter 2, verse 19, James, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder or, or tremble. Demons believe better than most of us probably that Jesus exists and that he has power and authority. They understand it really well. They, they see, so to speak, the unseen spiritual realm. And they obey very reluctantly, but they obey. He knows what's in store for him. What business do we have with each other? You know, it's not time, I don't think. Now is not the time, is it? When you're going to destroy us. You're the Holy One. I know you can't put up with me. You're going to cast me out forever. But we're trying to win. And it feels like we still have some more time to fight. Are you, is now the end? Are you going to cast us out into the hell itself? The demon's essentially saying here, and the root of it is what? That he understands the power of God and he understands the goodness of God. And he knows he falls short of that. And it actually rebels intentionally against God's goodness and chooses the opposite. And what he doesn't know is the love of God. He doesn't understand the mercy that would have Jesus be there at all that would in fact keep the world running past the original sin of Adam and Eve at the beginning, that would tolerate living on this earth as a perfect God-man and seeing sin all around him, experiencing brokenness all around him. You know, that, that aspect of his love is, is really what the demon is missing. And it's very often what we're missing. And I'll tell you, a failure to understand the love of God, along with His power and goodness, right? If you don't understand the love of God, then, then you're going to live in this place of fear, feeling threatened by Jesus. Because in a place that doesn't have the love of God, that's the place where demons thrive, right? It doesn't explicitly say this, but I think it says something profound about this particular synagogue congregation that a demon felt comfortable there. He was there already when Jesus showed up. I have a feeling if he knew and looked at you know, the bulletin ahead of time and saw, oh, Jesus is going to be the speaker today, I think he would have left. He was probably trapped. What do I do now? Jesus just showed up. That's how you feel if you don't know the love of God that also goes along with his goodness, his moral perfection, that goes along with his power, his right and authority to judge, his ability to judge. Right? If you don't have the love of God, you're going to have an unhealthy mindset. You're going to have a place where fear will flourish if you don't understand the love of God. Demons are not comfortable in a place where the love of God is known and exalted and rejoiced in. They're not comfortable in a place of grace 
and love, they, they can't fathom it. It makes them uncomfortable. You know, it's a fictional work, but uh, I'd encourage you sometime to read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional dialogue between an old, experienced demon and his nephew, I think. He's trying to, to tell his nephew how to be a good demon, right? Against the enemy that they have, which is God and God's people. And he talks about the uncomfortableness of when those Christians start loving each other and, and listening to God. It's just a, oh, a terrible place for a demon to be and to experience, right? They, they know God is holy. He's the holy one. They know he's good morally, but they just don't understand his love. The scriptures say very clearly that there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. It's in 1 John 4, 17-19. But that whole chapter just oozes the love of God and how it's so distinct from fear and cast it out. In fact, when Jesus was on earth and, and he was talking about what people could do to you as you follow him and the things that we ought to be afraid of, he says in Luke 12, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I warn you with whom you to fear. Uh, I, I will warn you whom to fear. Luke 12, verse 5. Fear the one who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what the demon's afraid of? Isn't that exactly the problem? Well, are we supposed to fear that one? Yes, and Jesus kept going. And this was his point. Luke 12, verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your heads are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You know, fear is going to thrive where you don't understand the love of God. Fear is going to thrive and cripple you and lead you to bad places where you don't believe that there is value in you. That there is so much value in you that the Son of God Himself would come into this earth and demonstrate who He is, not to flex and to show and to solve those particular problems and those tasks because they never would end, but to demonstrate who He is, that He is not only the powerful God, He's not only the good God, but He is the loving God who didn't have to come, who didn't have to speak, who didn't have to put up with all of this, but chose to because He finds you valuable. That you're created in His image and you're broken and He wants to fix you. That you're afflicted and He wants to heal you. That you're going to die and He wants to give you life. This is the message. This is the good news. This is why Jesus is there and why a relationship based on fear is always going to feel threatened. And it will still obey reluctantly. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. The, the language is very strong. Jesus is basically saying, shut up. Muzzle it is, is a literal translation of that. Put a muzzle on it. I don't encourage you to speak that way. He's Jesus. He does it in ways you will never do it or I will never do it until glory. Okay? But that's, that's the language here. He's like, shut it. 
and the demon shuts it. Come out of him. And the demon comes out, verse 26, throwing him, the man he was possessing into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. You know, the demon obeys reluctantly. The demon obeys reluctantly because he's doing the math and the calculus and he's going against what he really wants to do. But recognizes he really wants less to go burn in hell forever right now and be destroyed. He'd like to go on a little longer doing the things that he likes to do. So he's going to put up with it and he's going to go ahead, but I'm going to show him my way out. I'm going to go kicking and screaming. You see that several times with demons when they are cast out by Jesus. They try to throw that little kid in the fire and they, do, they come out kicking and screaming but they come out. That's a relationship based on fear. If you have trouble doing what God, you know God wants you to do, and you do it, that's good. But if it's out of a fear of consequences that God might get you, that's not good. The obedience that God desires for us is rooted not in that outward fear of consequences and understanding those rules externally, but, but in, a, in a transformed heart, in a character that wants to be like God, that, that wants to be good and have authority and power exercised well, and that wants to be loving because the heart understands the love of God that would reach into a heart like this. That response is one of a character transformation where there's a desire to obey, where the, the calculus doesn't have to happen in the mind to say, well, I, I, you know, I'm afraid of that. I don't want that to happen. But says, God wants me to do this. And I'm afraid. And I'm concerned. And I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm going to trust Him. Because He's good. And He's powerful. And above all else, is loving. And a relationship based on fear is not going to be like that. A relationship based on fame is not going to be like that. It's, it's only going to be a relationship, and this is our third one, the good one, a relationship based on faith. A relationship based on faith. Serves from the heart. Verse 29 Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Verse 31, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she waited on them. And the word therefore waited on them is, is diakoneo, same word from which we get deacon. Uh, it's often translated minister or serve. It's from the idea of waiting on tables and taking care of people in that way, which is probably more literally how it's intended here. But the response is, is similar, right? This is the response. When God works in your life, whether it's to physically heal a disease or to set you free from a particular sin, or to bring you into a relationship with Him that's based in faith, when you experience that yourself, when you find that personally, that, that relationship is going to transform you. 
that relationship based on faith is, is going to be a personal experience. It's going to be something that works deep down where you're going to become more like Jesus. You will become a better person. You will become more loving. You will use your gifts, your authority, your power, whatever it may be, for good, for the good of others. That's the way it works. A relationship based on faith turns to Jesus, trusts in Jesus, and turns away from everything else that competes with him. It's not rooted in fear. It's not rooted in, an, uh, oh, I kind of want to hold them at a distance. It sells out. It draws near despite the fear. It, it goes beyond just a distant association into a personal, intimate relationship with him. Rooted in the fact that it believes Jesus is king based on what he says and what he does. You know, I mean, just, you know, some of this is hard for us to grasp when he heals her instantaneously, right? Like we have how many people right now that are in nursing homes and getting rehabs or whatever. It's like, oh, they had the surgery. Now they go to the next step, whatever. Jesus just like, boom, healed, right? She didn't need any recovery time. She was probably healthier than she was before she had the fever, right? And boom, what's the response? Just start doing the stuff you were made to do. To serve other people, to, to serve Jesus. He, he proves who he is, this powerful, good, and loving king who just has come for this very reason to enter into a relationship with you. Not, not, not to be the hero of your Bible stories. Not to be the one that you try to be like. Not the one that you know all the things he said and you try to do them in your own strength. He came to have a relationship with you. He came for you to put everything that you have, to put your complete trust in him and nothing else. To say, you know what, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know Jesus is good and he's only going to do what's right. And I know he's powerful so that even if it costs me my life, he will raise me from the dead. I know that because he's loved me so much that he came from heaven to earth to live perfectly, to suffer horribly, even under the power of death and rise victoriously and has sent his spirit into my heart. That I might listen to him that I might be conquered, that that authority of Jesus would reach deep down right here. And I'm finding it not as hard to come and worship Him with His people because I'm not afraid of Him. I'm rejoicing in the love that He's shown to me. I know that, yeah, I've messed up. And so has everyone else if we're honest. And that the grace of Christ reaches even that. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. Whatever it is you've done. And he knows it better than you do. And he's come anyway to love you. And to bring you into this relationship with him. To trust him with that. Trust him with your reputation. Own your sin and your junk. Ask for help. Don't wait until she kicks you out. I wish I was kidding. Don't wait. Don't wait until you feel like you have to kick him out. Get out. Talk to Pastor William, Pastor David, me, one of the elders. Don't fight it on your own. 
Find at least a couple of other mature Christians you can share your burdens with. No matter what they are. I'm not saying just anybody. Use some discernment. Consider how you might use what you have. Your limited sphere of authority, the the goodness that God is working in you to demonstrate His love to other people. You know, big hole opened up. Nancy just mentioned a moment ago, right? With with Cheryl Chicanas came every year to Kids Fair and was in that kitchen. It was often very hot, right? And she's just churning the bowls of candy, opening new ones, you know, filling up the little ones so other people could go run and take them out and put them out on the floor. Like, you know, there's a very obvious hole, right? And that's a low barrier to entry. I mean, you're in the kitchen, right? Put some earplugs in. You would think you're at home, but with a lot of candy. You could even eat a piece here or there. Tell Nancy I said it was okay. That, that, that's a silly but obvious example, right? They're, they're, they're the prayer partners that we just talked about with the preschool. It's, a, a, you know, it's kind of like a, a cookie, gingerbread cookie pattern with a kid's name on it. Take one. Put it somewhere prominent, like Pastor Dave said, on your refrigerator or something. Just when you see it. Don't feel like a burden. Don't feel guilty. Like, oh, I didn't pray for them. I'm a terrible person. Whenever you see it. I put, I have to, I, maybe you should rotate it sometimes because I put mine uh, with a magnet on the door jam in my office and I realized some point last year, I was like, I just keep walking past that thing. It's not obvious to me anymore. So maybe, you know, maybe make it like Elf on a Shelf or something, you know, find a new place to put it each time. Um, make a little stand for it and put it some places. I don't know, maybe that's an idea. Um, you know, how can you demonstrate love of God. And, and don't hear that as like a to-do list, right? Actually, maybe it requires some reflection on your part to sit down and just think, well, Lord, what have you given me in your authority? Which, by the way, when Jesus was standing there after the resurrection with the disciples before him, and he said what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Make disciples. And then the other clause over that going, baptizing, teaching, right? Make disciples. That's his call for us because he has all authority. And he has given that to you. He's entrusted you with some area of authority. You know, maybe you're a parent with children. You know, maybe you have gifts of teaching that you could use in the children's ministry or somewhere else. Maybe you can sing or make a joyful noise even. We need folks up here in front singing. Talk to Justin. You know, you could pray. We have such prayer warriors. You know, don't get down on yourself if, if you're in a season of life where you can't do the things you used to. Think about the ways that God is now calling you to serve. How can you sacrifice and show that love of Jesus? How is God working in you to do that? And how is He working in you to be able to just share who He is? And, and by the way, I put that last on purpose because if... if You've come to a place where you know it's not that hard to worship Him, where you understand the joy you've received in, in the salvation from Him. You're, you're, you're moving in a direction, 
right? And he's working in you. And when you begin to consider your gifts and, and the talents God has given to you, then you're going to put them to use. And what happens is in those circumstances, stuff just comes out of your mouth while you're with other people. And sometimes stuff doesn't even come out of your mouth. It just comes out of your hands, out of your heart, out of your legs, by where you go, where you don't go, what you say, what you don't say, who you spend time with, who you don't spend time with, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy, where you are. All of those things work together and you wind up sharing Jesus the same way he did because he came from heaven to earth to show he's a good, powerful, loving king. And if you're following him, if you're sincerely focused on him, you're going to be the same. It's part of his identity. He stands before one of those cameras, you know, the biometric device or whatever, and it comes up, son of God, God, man, perfect. You know what? You stand before one of those things in the spiritual realm, no matter how far along your walk with Jesus you are, it's not going to show you. It's going to show Jesus. That's what it means to put your trust in him. That's what it means to follow him. That's a relationship based in faith. Do you believe that above all else? That whatever that camera picks up, it's going to see Jesus. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. For revealing yourself to us as the good and powerful and loving King. Oh Lord, cast out the fear in our hearts, the fear of judgment, the fear of punishment, the shame. Cast it out, Lord. Fill us with your love to understand your grace and your mercy. Lord, make us in our homes, in our, in our, in our communities, in this church, in our hearts. Make us a place where the demons are uncomfortable because your love is just pouring out of us because we understand and rejoice in who you are and what you've done, that, that we're less focused on ourselves and more on you, that we, O oh Lord, are trusting in you, seeking a relationship based in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.